this is Leslie Garford Tenzer, and this is Legal Tenzer, casual conversations on noteworthy legal topics. This year, the entertainment industry has been hit with two strikes. On May 2nd, 2023, the Writers Guild of America, representing over 11,000 writers of movies and televisions, went on strike. And on July 14th, SAG-AFTRA, the Actors Union, joined them. The unions are challenging issues, including payment from streaming services and issues concerning the use of artificial intelligence. Our guest today, Andrew Jaya, served as an attorney with the National Labor Relations Board and is now an assistant professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law. He is here to explain the labor issues and share his thoughts on how and when these strikes are likely to be resolved. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for having me, Leslie. So I think, first off, how and when the strikes may be resolved, I guess, is anybody's guess. It's hard to really know what's going on in a strike uh, unless you're really kind of inside the minds of of union leadership and and management. I mean, management really has sort of more uh, more to say, really, than than even the union does, uh, because they're ultimately in the position to know. Um, when and whether uh, sort of they're able to reach a deal meeting the union's demands. But I do think the issues that that we're seeing kind of take center stage in in, in these two disputes, uh, streaming residuals, the use of AI. I mean, for me, it was really a reminder of why, I mean, if you'll kind of permit, it's a little bit, I guess, kind of uh, cheeky, but this is really the original gig economy. I mean, mm-hmm. and it really is. We we kind of borrowed that terminology from this sector, from this from this uh, sector of the economy, because these these workers exhibit all the characteristics that what we call gig economy workers now um, exhibit as well. They they work in many of them. You know, we sort of think of the big names, the 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 big sort of famous stars drawing in uh, millions of dollars for for every project. But by and large, actually, many of these workers are working on a project basis, sort of from one project to the next. Their, their livelihoods depend on on whatever the next gig is and so they're concerned about um, they're concerned about long term um, their long-term economic security in a way that I think is perfectly in line with the kinds of concerns that, that you know the, the media generally the public generally have identified among what we call gig workers today and you know to just kind of further the point, you know the, the the two issues that are are sort of at dispute or sent you know that are centrally at dispute in in these two uh, sort of labor struggles, streaming residuals, use of AI, they track uh, very closely. You know the, the the questions surrounding you know whether a platform is an employer and how people will be compensated when they work for a certain platform. Um, that's the streaming issue. You know actors are paid differently based on whether they're their content is being distributed by a streaming platform versus, you know, a traditional um, media outlet like television or, or film distribution. Um, and then the use of AI, I mean, this is right. I mean, we've, we talked, everyone has talked about self-driving cars now for, for a decade, it seems like. But the use of AI, AI now has really kind of come home for a lot of other kinds of workers, not just drivers. And to me, the parallels there are just, are just very, very close. I think there's some other I get particularly interested in the AI issues because I think it's difficult to get traction on if you're coming from a labor advocacy background, you might, you know, sort of know that it's difficult to get traction on the introduction of new technology into the workplace. That's often an area where where employers have a lot of discretion. Um, But I think the issue is being raised and dealt with in the uh, SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild strikes in, in ways that that kind of Keep my interest and and I think are you know maybe point to a different way of thinking about AI. So I'll leave it, I'll leave it there. I don't know when these strikes are going are likely to be resolved. I think there's been a little bit of movement, at least on the writers guild side. I think they have 
come back to the table, that's usually a good sign. But uh, I can just say from my personal experience, I've been you know, back at the table, I've been away from the table. Um, you never really know how these things will go until they until they finally wind up. So interesting. And, you know, you raise a lot of issues. And, and one of the that um, I thought was interesting is the issue of economics. And I remember Fran Drescher, who is the president of SEG-AFTRA, saying something like 80% of their union doesn't even make the $28,000 a year that's required for them to earn um, health care. And another thing I wanted to point out, you know, you talk about Friends, the TV show, right? Every time Friends shows up on ABC or I don't know, whatever it was on NBC or, or, you know, TBS or some rerun, they get money. But if it's on streaming, they may not get that money. So that's, but the AI thing is interesting too, and I won't derail this to AI, that it's not just about writers writing. One of the things I read was this idea that you can make people look like you're in their background when they're not really people, which will put people out of work. So I'm wondering from a labor standpoint, and maybe this goes beyond just SAG-AFTRA, what is the value of the union to help people stay employed? Mm. That's a very good, good and important question. I think I, you know, I've told my students when I when I've taught employment law, and I'll be teaching labor law at, at the University of Baltimore School of Law this coming uh, this coming spring. But I've told my, you know, I've told my students that often, if you think about Lochner, freedom of contract, individual freedom of contract, that's one vision of how the relationship between employer and employee ought to be ought to be structured, and that that's a vision that I think still has proponents today, and we see it kind of echo in decisions like Epic Systems versus Lewis, for instance which is this decision saying that um, workers don't have a right under the, under the National Labor Relations Act to act collectively by pursuing uh, class action litigation. They have to litigate their claims individually under arbitration uh, agreements embedded in their contracts that can be enforced against them um, over and against their rights under the NLRA. That's one vision, the Lochner sort of free, individual freedom of contract concept of the, the employer-employee relationship. Um, really the counterweight, and it, this is really the only counterweight we've ever had in our economy is uh, the concept of, of a union or at least collective action. And that's a, that is an important distinction, um, just I think for, for people to keep in mind, unions are uh, a sort of formalized form of collective employee organization that's gotten the stamp of approval from the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, to represent all the employees as, as the exclusive representative. But it's possible under the National Labor Relations Act to form groups that are not necessarily formally endorsed as labor unions, but that still give employees rights because they're acting collectively on one another's behalf. And that that mechanism, collectivization of bargaining power, is just the only counterweight that we've ever really had in our economy to the Lochnerian uh, sort of vision. And and I think in extreme, you know, I, I just happened to catch an article today about uh, doctor pay in, in the Washington Post. Actually, doctors are paid very, very well, it turns out. I, I did not know that until I read this article. I'm just, you know, just kidding, of course. But um, nonetheless, uh, in the articles embedded a discussion about the way that residents are treated. You know, medical residents work these extraordinarily long hours for extraordinarily little pay. And that's part of the justification for why they make so much more later on, later on in life. But um, one of the main reasons cited, at least in this Washington Post article, is that, you know, they have no bargaining power. Our medical resident can really only go to one place to be employed as a medical resident. And there's no real way for a resident to use exit, which is a term that 
employment and labor lawyers use to talk about one way of exercising influence within the economy. You can leave your job, go get a better one. That's one way of showing or expressing your preference, um, uh, going to seek a better contract, you use exit. The other is to try to bargain. And there's just no way to do that if you don't have bargaining power. So I think, I think today, in today's looking at the disputes, the labor disputes uh, that are in the media today, the SAG-AFTRA strikes, uh, the SAG-AFTRA and, and, and Writers Guild strikes, um, those are really no, to my eye, they're really no different from any other labor dispute um, you know, for, for maybe a century. It really is about bargaining power and who has it and how to get it. And we don't have any, other, we really don't have another, another better mechanism, I think, for workers to have a voice at the table. They can exit, they can leave, they can go elsewhere, or they can try to bargain. And to bargain, you have to have bargaining power. Hmm. So I have, all right, so I have a few questions because I'm not familiar with this area of the law. First is, in order to be a union, does the NLRB have to approve you? Yes, I use that as a shorthand. There's an election process. So people in the labor sphere will talk about workplace democracy. And one, one way that workplace democracy is expressed is through a campaign and election process that really is a lot like running for any sort of political office, really. And unions have, I mean, internally, they think of themselves as having like a political leadership, you know, a president, a vice president who have been elected by the members. But the union itself actually has to be voted in by the employees. That's a pro- There's a process that's administered by the National Labor Relations Board. And at the end of that, the board will certify the union as having won the election. And that gives the union the right to act on behalf of 100% of the employees mm-hmm. covered within what's known as a bargaining unit. So if you have, you know, a bunch of um, Starbucks baristas, for instance, the that Starbucks was my question. Baristas, that was my question. Yes, that's the other one that's, that's one of the other ones. That's, that's the other question. Yeah. yeah. But the baristas, for instance, are, you know, they, they've all got, they share a job category or classification with one another. And so the NLRB will issue an order if, you know, if a Starbucks unionizes, if and when there will be a, a, you know, there would be an order saying this is the certified bargaining agent or exclusive representative for all the people in this in this job classification. Um, until that point, you can't have a collective bargaining agreement, a contract, mm-hmm. because you've got to have, uh, you have to have won the election to negotiate the collective bargaining agreement. So, but here's my question about that. And by the way, listeners, you should watch Norma Ray because it explains all this. Really I knew we well. would. Yes, yeah, Sally Field. I knew we would talk about Norma Ray today. So yeah, <laughs> you can't great. get away without it. Yeah. Um, but we, I read in the paper that this Starbucks is is unionizing, or this particular Amazon warehouse is unionizing. So, you know, whereas my traditional understanding is it's an entire group. Can you unionize just one Starbucks? location or you know I, I just that's I guess that's the question is can you because what I'm hearing is only individual units so I guess to reword it is one Starbucks location considered a bargaining unit hmm. this is yeah this is an issue that is subject to some um I guess it's continuing to evolve I suppose you could say before the board and I should be careful not to you know, the, the some of the Starbucks Starbucks activity was kind of pending while I was while I was working for the board. So I don't want to go too far in sort of, um, I guess, over overreaching and how much I talk about about Starbucks in particular. But um, but what I will say is that when a union petitions to be recognized, you know, by the National Labor Relations Board, there is a conversation that has to happen about whether the bargaining unit that's pitched or proposed 
is an appropriate bargaining unit. And there's there's debate about whether we should allow for um, what are known as like micro units by some, you know, by some commentators, really small bargaining units that are maybe just one store or one location. And then there are some perspectives that say, no, you got to have a bargaining unit that covers everybody. So like everybody who works at Walmart across the country, you know, every single Walmart employee needs to be part of a single unit. Um, and that has that has huge consequences for unions trying to to organize those locations, because um, when you think about running an election, the cost, the logistics, I mean, it really becomes vastly more difficult when you're talking about a bargaining unit that stretches coast to coast, every yeah. single Walmart, every single Starbucks, every single Amazon location, mm-hmm. as opposed to having to run an election among the you know few dozen baristas at a particular Starbucks location. There are different consequences of, of the two perspectives, and, and the two are sort of in intention and conflict uh, sort of as we speak. Well, you know, and I would think that the needs of union members in a Starbucks or a Walmart in New York is different from, say, in Alabama. But I don't know, just that's just a a passing thought. Um, But going back to the Writers Guild and the SAG-AFTRA. So, you know, you talk about the bargaining power of the two parties. And I want to get, of course, we're going to talk about Barbie in a minute, too, (laughs) because every podcast has to include Barbie right now. But I'm thinking more about the individuals who cross the picket line to work for, say, Disney Studios, right? Because that's one of the power brokers, so to speak, against the members of the union. If they do that, first of all, can the Writers Guild kick them out, which means they lose benefits that the union offers? And number two, so what when it's Disney who's always going to be hiring them anyway? Yeah, that's a good question. And that that does depend there's there's not a, a binary answer to that. It's a bit of their sort of levels of gradation. And it really depends on the uh, the bylaws and constitution of the union, the, uh, the governing documents of the union in question. Different unions have different rules about this. I mean, I, I've worked with some unions, for instance, that have rules on the book that say, if you cross a picket line, we can fine you or punish you in various ways. But in practice, they don't usually, um, or they don't. Others are much more strict about it. And I've worked with both kinds of unions, uh, sort of, I've seen both outlooks out there. My impression of, of the entertainment industry is that even before you get to the form, whatever the formal potential consequences are for crossing the picket line, there's a tremendous, um, a, tr- a very strong, I guess you could say, sociological or cultural norm against crossing a picket line. And that that is much more powerful even than any sort of penalty that might be prescribed in the governing documents of the union. I would be surprised uh, to see a, a large number of, you know, SAG-AFTRA members crossing the picket line just because I think that is such a such a strongly held norm. I think you heard, I think Fran Drescher said I, she gave that phenomenal press conference, and I think she said something to the effect of these are like just deeply deeply held values, not crossing a picket picket line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think she was probably speaking for a lot of people, uh, a lot of members of SAG-AFTRA, I would imagine. So I, to me, it's hard to imagine that somebody would do that when the potential social consequences are so so severe, but it may carry with uh, with it, you know, sanctions, formal sanctions, you know, mm-hmm. including uh, usually the first step is a fine, um, but to be kicked out of the out of the union, sometimes there's also a penalty that that is that is also prescribed, but it's not that's not something that's taken very lightly ever. Um, that's a very serious consequence for the reasons you highlighted, because it could uh, it could have other you know further downstream 
uh, sort of consequences for that individual. So, but yeah, I think, and what difference does it make? As I said, you may, you may get this job this time for Disney today, but you're going to have to work with your colleagues and your f- fellow union members, you know, on future projects down the road. And I think, um, I think for a lot of people, if they're, if they're thinking about the long term, they're, you know, they're probably, you know, just weighing the sort of what's best for me kind of immediate economic trade-offs. It's, it's probably better long-term to maintain good relations than it is to get this project today. You know, that'll get you through the next couple of months. So. So, and, 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 you know, all these people who are out and I actually have, and you probably do too. I have a lot of students who are actors. I mean, I'm in New York, so I get a lot of students who are actors, but, and, and one of the things I learned was you have to earn a certain amount of money for the union to give you um, health insurance. So that was, mm. and again, that's that 28,000, but the, you know, I, are these union members by standing in solidarity, are they, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, are they collecting any money? Like, does the union give them kind of a cost of living wage or anything? Cause so, my heart is breaking. Yes. I mean, I mean, that is, it is a, let me just, first of all, say, I think going on strike is a, it, it is something that is never really done lightly. Even we talked previously about the kind of the disparate incomes within these two unions in particular, the stars pulling in millions of dollars, but most people are not making huge money as we've, as we've said. And for those, uh, for those workers going on strike means, you know, not earning the income that they're, that they're depending on, you know, to put food on the table, to pay the rent and so forth. That's true for unions across the country. Every strike uh, carries with it that kind of economic pressure. And it really is in a way uh, a strike is really the the union members communicating to management that um, we are willing to sort of withstand this pressure because we think this pressure in the short term is actually smaller than than the needs we have and the demands that we have over the long term. And it's a way of communicating an economic preference uh, to management. But there are things that unions can do to soften the blow. Um, some unions do have strike funds. Um, where they're able to supplement striking members' uh, pay. They often have to show up at a picketing location in order to kind of check in and say, I'm actively participating in the strike and I'm going to sort of sign up and get my, you know, become eligible for, for my strike pay. But, you know, we, we mentioned Starbucks earlier. I would not be surprised if there's a lot of overlap between the baristas and the SAG-AFTRA members in certain cities, right. like Los Angeles and New York, for instance. And so, a lot of people who are striking as SAG-AFTRA members may be turning to other forms of employment in order to make up the difference. And, and I, I really would not be surprised if, if, that's, if that's going on. All right. Well, that, that makes me feel a little better for them. All right. So my last question, coming back to Barbie, is that one of the things I read about all of this is that since the big studios are doing so well, that they don't have any incentive to settle. And the corollary of that is that a lot of studios are saving money because they're not producing content which right now and relying on old content. So they're not, they don't have that incentive. I don't know if you can comment on that or have any thoughts about that. Counterintuitive because the, the idea of a strike is that it's supposed to inflict some economic harm on, on management. But the reality is there are certain kinds of and really, most com- there are certain kinds of companies that can and, and employers that can weather a strike better better than others. But if there is a, a, a sort of a, a, an income stream for the company or for the employer that's already baked in, and they've already got a sort of a, a bit of runway, in the short term they do they do potentially save money. It's not just the, the the movie studios or the television studios. 
um, universities, there's a similar dynamic at universities because you know the tuition money is the check has been written. The tuition money is already sort of in the bank from from the university standpoint. So if they if they don't have to pay, you know, their their workers for a, for a time, it actually does. Uh, there is a little bit of a windfall for management where there can be, but uh, there's only so much runway. And eventually, you know, they will. There's a cliff, and they will fall off the cliff. They won't have more content that they can that they can disseminate, that they can uh, distribute, and they will uh, ultimately run out of that out of that income stream. But that is, it's a part of the calculus. And I, all I can say is, I'm sure that you know um, both sides have have really thought carefully about uh, about sort of how the the short term economics play into the long term the long term game. So the income stream right now comes from streaming. <laughs> yes, that's a that's a good point. Um, and you know, as for whether they're doing super well or not, I mean, there's a part of this that I think it really would take an expert in in this particular sector to know what's going on. But I've heard from I've heard voices sort of from different perspectives saying that actually streaming is not really working out for anybody so well. But the mm-hmm. bottom line the bottom line does seem to be that the producers are, are, you know, earning revenue, you know, they're doing well, but some, something seems to be, you know, sort of uh, disrupted in the model that, that seems to be kind of uh, perturbing for both sides. So, so yeah, that may play a factor in how this ultimately resolves. Right. And, 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 you know, to your point, I mean, technology in this case is the ultimate disruptor, right? So it's making us, re or not us, but the parties, rethink the model for the future for that, for the uh, entertainment industry. It's, it's really, this is so interesting. Anything else that you um, want to add to the discussion or things you think listeners should know? I would just, I would watch, I think we should all be watching how uh, these very charismatic uh, union activists deal with the question of, of the use of AI. Um, as a lawyer, as a, you know, we are writers. Mm-hmm. And of course, I think we're all kind of wondering, you know, how is AI going to influence the legal profession? I think how the how these two unions deal with these questions in their labor struggles actually may may be of of interest to to many of us lawyers and also more broadly in the economy. So um, I would keep an eye on that issue and and see where see where they end up. That's a really good point. I, I am now of the school that we should embrace AI. It's here. We just have to figure out how to live with it. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been so helpful, and I really appreciate your insights. Thank you. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a professor or attorney with whom you'd like me to speak, send us an email at legaltensor at westacademic.com and send us any suggestions you may have. We love getting feedback. Have a great day. This podcast was created in collaboration with West Academic. Additional episodes can be found on West Academic Study Aids Collection. Students may already have access through their school subscription and can check with their law school library for access. For a limited time, Legal Tensor listeners can save 15% on titles on the West Academic Store with the promo code TENSOR15 at checkout.